One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hi, I'm Carrie Gracie and welcome to The Real Story, a brand new podcast from the BBC World Service. Every week we'll be joined by a global panel of experts to tackle just one story. We'll have time to get to the heart of it, to examine it from all sides and hopefully generate lively debate from our guests. So a simple premise to gather the best voices around our virtual table to understand the real story behind the headlines. We hope you enjoy this, our first edition. The plush Millennium Hotel in central London. Twelve years ago, a tea ceremony here turned into a murder when two Russians used a radioactive substance to poison a KGB man turned dissident. It was the kind of attack many thought had ended with the Cold War, but it heralded a new freeze between Russia and the West. Now the US says it's under attack from Russia. This time, the poisoning, not from polonium, but from political manipulation through social media. The US special counsel, Robert Mueller, has filed charges against 13 Russian individuals, three Russian entities. It's all part of an investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. But US spy agencies have themselves practiced disinformation and interference in other countries over many decades. Critics say Russia is now delivering the US a dose of its own medicine. So has Moscow transformed information warfare on the 21st century battlefield? And behind the headlines, what other countries and forces are manipulating information and politics in open societies? Can democratic governments, social media giants and news organisations do more to defend their values? This is The Real Story with me, Carrie Gracie. Let's get over to our studio and meet our panel. And in this, the very first edition, our panel is Matthew Bullock of Chatham House and International Affairs Think Tank in London. Dimitri Linick, the former London Bureau Chief of the Voice of Russia radio station. Molly McHugh, a special advisor to governments on cybersecurity and information warfare. Welcome to all of you. Hi. Thanks, Thanks for, having, for us. having us. Yeah. Now then, the US Intelligence Director Dan Coates has said the US is under attack. Is he right? Molly McHugh. Uh, I think that the assessments from the U.S. intelligence community, from NATO and other allied intelligence communities, are pretty clear about the nature of uh, Russian information warfare targeting the United States and other countries. Um, and in that aspect, yes, there is an attack that is ongoing. Matthew Beleg, do you agree? Um, I do. and But it, it kind of um, means that you have to define what being under attack is. Does it mean that Russia is interfering in democratic processes in the United States? Certainly. Does it mean that Russia is at war with the West? Certainly also. But we need to define very precisely what it means to be under attack these days. Dmitry Linick, is the language of war appropriate here? Uh, It is appropriate here. And um, we need indeed to define uh, what Uh, information warfare is, uh, in the first instance, we need to have some sort of timeline in order to understand where it started, who is to blame, if we are able to determine that at all. So before we say that, yes, Russia are baddies, 
we have to sort of dig a little deeper than this. Well, we'll come to the question of goodies and baddies in a moment and we'll come to the question of of the timeline. But let's just first identify exactly what Russia is accused of doing because the Mueller indictments allege that beginning in 2014, a Russian organization called the Internet Research Agency began to interfere with the U.S. political process. The organization sought, in part, to conduct what it called information warfare against the United States of America through fictitious U.S. personas on social media platforms and other Internet-based media. The indictment goes on to detail specific activities. Defendants and their co-conspirators used false U.S. personas to ask real U.S. persons to participate in the Florida Goes Trump rallies. Defendants and their co-conspirators asked certain individuals to perform tasks at the rallies. For example, defendants and their co-conspirators asked one U.S. person to build a cage on a flatbed truck and another U.S. person to wear a costume portraying Hillary Clinton in a prison uniform. Defendants and their co-conspirators paid these individuals to complete the requests. Molly McHugh, that's just one example of the kind of activity involved. Give us a give us a broader sense of what was going on. The Mueller indictment was really interesting as an intelligence document. There's been a lot of discussion of it as a, a legal document, something relating to this investigation. But if you look at it strictly from an intelligence perspective, this is a window into an ongoing intelligence operation being conducted against the United States. It's the type of thing we normally wouldn't see until decades later when it's all eventually declassified. And in that sense, there are a lot of very interesting aspects. Essentially, the dynamic that is being described in the indictment where there's these sort of deep cover identities being established for false U.S. personas online backed by stolen documents, stolen identification, forged identifications that are connected to bank accounts, cryptocurrency accounts, PayPal accounts so they can launder money and earn money in some cases with these identities while purveying specific information into specific communities in the United States. Essentially, the model this lays out is more of a digital illegals program than it is just Mm -hmm. propaganda. And I think if you look at it from that aspect and the way that it will need to be approached in the future in terms of both intelligence and counterintelligence, um, there's a lot in there that is really hard to dig through. And knowing that the indictment is probably just this top surface of information that's available, and I think it specifically says that in many instances in this example, but doesn't list out everything they have, I think it's going to take us a long time to work through what all of this actually means. We'll come back to some of that in a moment, but I'm interested in that expression, digital illegals, because many American citizens unwittingly became tools of these digital illegals, (laughs) so-called. Dr. Heber Brown III is... One, he was a religious leader in Maryland and he became suspicious about a Twitter account which was calling for a Baltimore rally to mark the anniversary of the death of Freddie Gray, who was a black man who died in police custody. Now, Dr. Brown had been active in Baltimore for many years and he'd never come across this group calling itself Blacktivist. He started to feel it must belong to an out-of-town organisation. He takes up the story. Yes. Well, 
as many will be able to imagine, the arrest and death of Freddie Gray here in Baltimore, of course, caused uh, what we call the Baltimore Uprising. And it wasn't just because of the death of Freddie Gray. It was because of a pattern of abuses and a lack of accountability and transparency in the Baltimore City Police Department. And so during that time, there were many rallies and marches that were going on around the city. And the city was attracting a number of people who really weren't genuinely sympathetic to the cause here and and respectful of local voices, but rather were trying to use Baltimore as their platform to propel themselves on a greater stage. So those of us who've been in activism here in the city for a number of years began to take on the role of trying to filter out and challenge and confront those who we felt like were coming here with ulterior motives. And that's how I came across this account called Blacktivist. This particular account around the one-year commemoration of Freddie Gray's death was trying to organize an event at a time when the energy was still very high in the city to bring about substantive social change. But I began to become suspicious of this account when I did not see any profile pictures of an actual person. They were just using stock photos and photos of Freddie Gray's face. In addition, when I began to ask some of my colleagues who are also in community organizing and social justice activism here in the city, I began to ask them if anybody knew this person and nobody could vouch for the person. And that's when I confronted them, asked them if they were from Baltimore and they admitted that they were not from here. And after that, I challenged them to cancel their event, to post a public apology for trying to come to the city to lead an event. Uh, And Um, urged them to take their lead from local people uh, in Baltimore if they wanted to be of of any service. And then how did you find out that this account was actually backed by Russians? And how did you feel at that point? Did you feel that this was an attempt to dupe American citizens? It wasn't until fall of 2017 when I saw an article that was suggesting that there was rumored that that account was backed by Russians. So up until that time, I just thought it was just another person who was coming to Baltimore trying to lead and create a platform for themselves. So I really was surprised when I learned in 2017 that this was the rumor that there were Russians behind this effort. And then, of course, further surprised uh, when just recently here, evidence came forward to confirm that. It doesn't change my general feeling about those, whether internal or external to the country, trying to influence, trying to steer and manipulate existing conditions of impression for their own agenda and aims. I feel like whether it's the Russians or whether it was another organization from out of town or even somebody in town with an ulterior motive, my reaction would have been the same. Also, though, I feel like this is a time for the United States to really redouble its efforts to focus on the oppressive conditions that attracted this this Russian element in the first place. If Baltimore City, for example, had a more just and accountable police department, if we did not have as high unemployment rates as we do, if we had equitable funding in our public education system so that all children have a quality education, uh, and I could go on and on and on, if those root causes and root issues were addressed adequately, I'm not sure if the Russians or any other element would have had much of anything to to seize upon to try to dupe the American citizenry in the first place. 
Well, that was Dr. Heber Brown. And later in the program, we'll pick up his point about whether the US could have issues to deal with. But first, I, I want to look at the timing of this, because Matthew Buleg, why did this Russian campaign start in 2014? Well, I, th- I think it's, it started way before that. If you, if you trace it back, as we mentioned earlier, this, this logic of warfare and this logic of being in conflict with one another dates back from way before 2014. Um, 2014, it was the start of the electoral campaign in the, in the United States, and it was also the start of political activism gearing towards the election, which means that there was a window of opportunity for potential foreign influence to step in. There is now evidence through the Mueller indictments that Russia probably stepped in to influence or sway the vote in one way or another. So in that sense, uh, you can't blame the Russians for trying. Dmitry Linick, the question of the sophistication of all of this, the servers, the VPNs, the masked locations, US-based email accounts, all to give the impression that this was carried out by Americans. Were you surprised by that level of sophistication? Well, I'm surprised. In the first place, I, I'm not prepared to uh, take the indictment at face value. I think a proper lawyer needs to go through that first. Second of all, I think the people listed in the indictment have to respond to it. One of them, the chief indictee, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, dismissed it as rubbish and saying mm. Americans are in- impressionable people. That's what he said. Uh, So I don't know what the response should be. Only on the basis of listening out, uh, hearing out both sides can we... Obviously, there's a process, but do you um, think it's credible, the indictment, even if it's not yet proven? It seems to be. Okay, but uh, there are a couple of questions that that I at least would ask, or do you want to butt in? Yeah, I I would. I completely agree with you. The In that sense, the Mueller indictment is pushing out open doors. It is merely showing that there was interference with law-level agents and unwitting Americans. And I think the the term unwitting or unwittingly is excessively interesting to look at. Uh, But it it is in no way tying um, Russian interference or Russian cohesion with the Trump campaign, nor is it tying it with any top officials from the U.S. administration. If the interference was on uh, behalf of uh, the Trump campaign, uh, those alleged uh, manifestations or demonstrations or rallies or whatever, and uh, Facebook posts and that kind of thing, they were both uh, for Trump and against Trump, and for Clinton and against Clinton. So how do you figure that? So Uh, so, I'd just like to bring Molly McKee in there. Okay. What you're saying about the dynamic of the information landscape they were constructing is incredibly important because while for Americans this is something new to look at, this idea that you're facing an adversary whose goal is basically to burn everything down and not to achieve specific outcomes all the time. Um, If you have watched Russian information campaigns, um, not just via social media, but historically over time um, in the region, particularly in the Baltic states, Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, other places, this is typically the dynamic that they play in. And it's why it's so hard for people to understand that it is happening and what the goals are, because there's this we're working on both sides. We will push both narratives. We are not actually for any of these people achieving anything. We are for the weakening of specific things within these states that we believe gives Russia an advantage. Can I respond to that? So I just, just before you do, um, Molly McKee, could you just define the information warfare in question? 
Uh, certainly. I mean, in the case of the United States, as I think was uh, repeatedly laid out in the indictment, the, the term tends to be so discord. But it is to pull on these divisions. Um, in the interview that you had with the gentleman from Baltimore, the way that he describes it is, um, you know, they didn't create any of this. They just sort of got in there and, and, and made it worse. That is how these things work well. Russia can't create divisions within societies, but they are very good at um, taking a fringe view and making it more of a mainstream issue um, using now social media and other information campaigns. Um, but in the past, uh, with more traditional media, with um, local actors, with um, you know other organizations that were created to do the same things, um, the only difference is the timeline is radically condensed uh, when you're using social media because it's much quicker. And the threshold of disbelief is, uh, I think, much higher because uh, if you're seeing something on social media, it's much more likely that you will accept it without question than if you're confronted with some guy that you don't really know who is uh, directly in front of you making a statement. Um, So it it changes how we consume and view information and I think Russia has figured this out very effectively um, and they are using it in a variety of places. Dimitri Learning from the best. Um, Let me quote you something. The U.S. military is developing software that will let it secretly manipulate social media sites by using fake online personas to influence Internet conversations and spread propaganda. Whose quote is that? The discovery... uh, Let me finish. uh, That the U.S. military is developing false online personalities could also encourage other governments, private companies and non-government organizations to do the same. The quote comes from The Guardian and dates back to March 17th, 2011. You surprised? I'm not at all surprised. I don't think anyone is. But we'll come back to what the US role in all of this. We're just right now, we just want to focus on what the Russians are doing in the US. And Matthew, you were nodding during what Molly was saying there. Does that mean you were agreeing with all of her points? I do, Molly Matthew here, and I do believe that Russia is exploiting the pre-existing cracks in our Western democracies, whether whether it is in the United States or in the frontline states in Eastern Europe or even in the UK or in France or elsewhere. They are only exploiting the cracks. They are not creating new cracks. They're just amplifying what is out there and and making it May make us look bad in the process. And, and Dimitri Linick, can I just is it, would you agree with that? I mean, I, I, I we're going to come to your point that. Russia is not the only player in this game. But would you agree that that is what Russia has been doing in the US? I cannot agree before I'm, I've, uh, I've seen these in, uh, this indictment proven in court, not before then. I want to understand why Russia would so discord in the US. Um, the question is... If there's some kind of constant state of war, the burning everything down, as Molly McKee describes it, is information war somehow cheaper than other forms of war, Matthew? Not necessarily cheaper in as much as it is more efficient in a way. And if you look at what Russia is doing in terms of what we call full spectrum warfare, the end of one spectrum would be rolling in tanks, then the other end of the spectrum would be interference in our Western democracies and internal processes through information warfare, destabilization, sowing discord and so on. So in a way, using cheaper methods than uh, entertaining a huge uh, military, for instance, is indeed cheaper and more efficient because it, it aims at softening us from within, making us more ready to believe or discredit in a lesser way 
what one state or another could feed us in in terms of propaganda, whether it is Russian propaganda or Western propaganda, you name it. Um, but it is in a way making, making us softer. And Molly McHugh, the, um, Russia obviously under President Putin is an increasingly authoritarian state. Would you argue that this kind of behaviour, this kind of aspect of, of, a, of a constant war comes more naturally to authoritarians? Uh, certainly, but I think it's, you know, the Russian goals are very clearly outlined in their uh, strategic doctrines, in their national security concepts. Um, it names the United States of America as the main adversary of Russia. Um, and that is very specific language, um, which we cannot ignore. This deniability factor has become an incredibly important aspect of how they advance Russian power objectives in the world, mm. whether it be an in information warfare where you have the supposed Internet Research Agency as the agency behind these things or whether you're talking about um, you know, physical, uh, actual conflict. But really, how new is any of this? Going back to the tactics of the Cold War with a new armory, perhaps, that armory provided by social media. So let's hear now from Jack Barsky, who was once an undercover KGB agent, but is now a US citizen. Jack, I think your original name is not Jack. You're, you're in a way, the original Russian fake arriving in the US on a false identity. Do tell us more. Yeah, I was a genuine fake, uh, hardly distinguishable from the original um, yeah, I, I operated here undercover under this Barsky identity for 10 years, and, and today I'm a citizen. Does this information <laughs> war sound familiar to you from your long years as a sleeper agent? Oh, it, that uh, was something that was in the tool belt of the KGB and its uh, predecessors since its uh, very early beginnings, uh, creating disinformation uh uh, weakening uh, the resolve of the enemy or the adversary, uh, and uh, as Ms. McHugh said, you know, trying to to uh, uh, deepen the pre-existing rift in society. This is nothing new. The methods are new, and what uh, what I have to uh, grant the Russians today, they're significantly more sophisticated and have significantly more knowledge in how this country uh, operates. Uh, when, when I was uh, uh, trained, uh, the ignorance amongst the uh, KGB personnel who actually spent time in the U.S. as diplomats and so forth was phenomenal. They didn't have a clue. i give you one quick example. I was told, so I was sent to New York and, and was told by one of my handlers, you know, you should try to stay away from the Jews. Ha? Huh? In New York City? Anyway, so uh, nowadays they they know what's going on here very much so, and and that makes them more dangerous. And the objective is still the same to as it was in your day to turn the focus of the U.S. inward rather than uh, out. You, you said the key word inward. That's correct. You know, as long as we're shooting arrows at each other, we we don't. Uh, you know, you can only focus on one uh, main uh, item at one time. Yeah, you know, in the meantime, you know, if we if we are uh, busy with internal politics, this is also procedural as far as the Congress is concerned and so forth. Uh, uh, Putin can steal another piece of property in Europe, right? Just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, we're looking at information warfare. 
Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. Have a listen to the documentary, the very best documentaries brought to you by BBC World Service, investigating, analysing, examining probably every topic you could think of. From the sad to the serious, from the ordinary to the extraordinary. Fascinating, revealing, poignant. Do please let us know what you think of the Real Story podcast. Or if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into, you can email us at our new email address, therealstory.com at bbc.co.uk or tweet at BBC The Real Story. But now, let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Carrie Gracie, looking at information warfare and my guests. We're joined by Matthew Beleg of Chatham House, which is an international affairs think tank in London. Dmitry Linick, the former London bureau chief of the Voice of Russia radio station. And from our Washington DC studio by Molly McHugh, who's a special advisor to governments on cybersecurity and information warfare. Now, is Russia transforming the information battlefield of the 21st century or is it just delivering the United States a dose of its own medicine? The US has long meddled in the affairs of other countries, including their elections. Dmitry Linick, um, do you see this as just Russia delivering the dose back to the US? Absolutely. Definitely. The US is a far more advanced country technologically. It has the biggest cyber army in the world, and dozens of countries have those. The budget is, of course, the biggest. Then comes China, I think. Creating false personas on the Internet dates back to at least 2010 in the United States, using Facebook and other platforms of that kind. Uh, At least we knew about that from back then uh, in... um, the context of FBI combating crime. Molly McHugh. You know, it's it's an interesting discussion. I, the U.S. focus on social media um, uh, as a potential venue of, of battle emerged from a variety of different things, but certainly coming out of the Arab Spring and other events like the election of President Obama in 2008 and the way that that campaign used social media organization and mobilization as a critical tool, um, there were a number of events that were happening that showed that these new means of connecting people and communication are powerful tools that everybody is going to start paying attention to for a whole variety of different means. Initially, the focus, other than figuring out how this stuff worked and what its potential power was, a lot of it then ended up focusing on what we now call CVE, countering violent extremism, trying to find ways to get into communities that are being used to recruit terrorists and other extremists. That was one of the places uh, initially where there was a lot of attention on what was going on. But a lot of this gets back to goals and intentions. And I think that that's something that's really important to focus on. So Um, are you saying, Molly, that ends justify the means when it comes to U.S. operations? Yes, but no. I think goals are very important. And I think that, you know, ignoring these tools would have been dumb for any country to do. And that is absolutely the truth. And obviously, every country with the capability to do this is looking um, at information as well as cyber. And those are separate venues to speak about. One of the most important things to look at in terms of what does this all mean 
we, the West, we, the United States, however you want to define that, part of the struggle we've had post-Snowden, post-Assange, post-Manning, and all of these discussions is how open to keep our information space and responding to other things, how not to close things down. And I think you see Russia closing its own information space, ensuring that the Russian language universe is more controlled and more separate. Uh, Russia has developed an entirely separate social media. They have shut down tools like VPNs and anonymous accounts. The thing is, I suppose, is that we're not talking about the openness or, or, or otherwise of one's own space right now. We're talking about one state actor which goes out and interferes in the internal politics of another. Dimitri's point is that the United States has done this for decades. So shrug what's different about the Russians doing it now. There's been a lot of research done on this question of, quote, meddling. And while the numbers show the U.S. has done more to be involved in other countries' elections, the intentions of this were mostly to promote democracy and open societies and things like this. And in that case, um, you know, I do believe that is a critical part of what American policy has traditionally been in the world, is trying to promote the values and interests that we support and Well, get let's behind. put that to a non-American, Matthew Buleg. There are three points I wanted to mention concerning Russian information warfare or hybrid destabilization, even though the word is, is not um, quite correct. One, it is militarized. Information warfare is considered a military weapon on the full spectrum of warfare and is used as such by the security services or the counter-military intelligence services. So just to be very clear, you're saying that is a distinction between Russia and the US, that it's it's part of a military... In as much as if you take security agencies, for instance, in the United States, uh, whether it's the CIA or the NSA, are not considered a military, then yes, this is a Russian approach. It is a very weaponized and militarized approach to information warfare. The second point is that it is systematic. It is used in a systematic fashion, in a comprehensive way against all the cracks that Russia can or could exploit in our democracies, whether it is in the West or elsewhere. It is also ideological in a way because it is also convening a message that goes beyond only the internal processes of democracies or elsewhere. It is also aimed at weakening or fragilizing the frontline states in Eastern Europe. We've seen it with Ukraine, for instance. We've seen it in Crimea with those little green men. They carry a message. They carry the message that we can soar destabilization. We can create separatist movements from scratch where there was none in the first place. Or we can create a de facto feeling that Russian minorities can be can feel threatened by this or that state and the Russian state will need to intervene. So this is part of the ideological information warfare as well that is quite unique to the Russian approach. So are you saying that uh, this form of hybrid warfare or information warfare is more aggressive, more problematic to the countries where it's being weaponized than that of other state actors like the US or European governments? It is not necessarily more dangerous in as much as Russia considers itself at war with the West and acts as such. And there is no such thing as hybrid warfare because all wars are hybrid. They're not only about weapons and missiles. They're also about winning the hearts and minds of the population. But I suppose what you're basically saying is that the populations of these countries, which are the targets, need to understand that they are on a front line and that they are targets on that front line. Exactly so. Dimitri? The only distinction that... um emerges from all of this is that, again, the democracies, so-called, have a moral high ground or claim a moral high ground. And that is the difference. I don't see any difference in the techniques employed. I grew up during the Cold War, and I knew about information warfare 
even though the name didn't exist to me anyway. We knew all about that. Can I just check with that with the others? Yeah. So, Molly McHugh, do you agree with Dimitri there that the techniques are the same, it's just that the US is uh, claiming a moral high ground? Um, and in terms of the tools available to different actors, certainly the same tools are available to different actors. Um, I, I don't agree on, on the technique point because I, don't, I, agree, I, I believe that the goals you are trying to achieve inform your technique and I do not believe that the US is using these in the same way that Russia does. I want to broaden this discussion for a moment because we've talked very much about Russia and the West, Russia and the US, but of course the rising superpower and another authoritarian state is China. And some countries are becoming increasingly concerned about China's influence operations. For example, German intelligence has complained of China's use, as it alleges at any rate, of fake social media accounts to recruit informants and extract sensitive information. So for a closer look at China's arrival on the information battlefield, we're joined by Howard Zhang of the BBC Chinese service. Now, Howard... Uh, the allegation in Germany is that 10,000 citizens were contacted on social media, specifically LinkedIn, the professional networking site, by fake profiles disguised as headhunters and consultants and think tankers and scholars. And the Germans are complaining of a broad attempt at infiltration by China. Do you think that's true? And if so, what would be the objective? Well, I, I'm not an expert in terms of uh, online espionage, but I can see the potential uh, if you act as a corporate image, you approach someone, you become their LinkedIn uh, kind of associates, eventually you'll be able to see some of the things they post. And if you collect enough of those information, you may be able to preview, you know, if you have some type of algorithm, calculate the type of things they're thinking, maybe from that level. But in terms of how can you recruit them? That's a, a, a really a question for, for a proper... Mm -hmm. uh, and then in terms of China's footprint mm -hmm. um, in, t in the realm that we're discussing, mm -hmm. there is growing unease, isn't there, in a number of countries. I mean, one can mention Germany and other European countries, but also New Zealand, Australia, the United States, at China's growing might. I suppose mm -hmm. it's just one aspect of growing mm -hmm. national strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you said, that's slightly different from information warfare. Maybe, maybe a part of it. But is my point is that yeah. it is it is an aspect in the twenty first century of the, the of rising influence. Yes, definitely. In terms of information warfare, from a, uh, a journalist, from a editor of a BBC website, what I can see is more uh, of trying to uh, flood the Sinosphere or the Chinese speaking world with China controlled or China backed. Uh, material and content. And this is more and more seen as, you know, previously known as independent or, uh, you know, mm. overseas websites being all of a sudden purchased or bought either overtly or covertly by a Chinese so-called quote-unquote so, company. So the objective there is not in any sense sowing discord or um, exacerbating existing political differences or polarizing a debate in a, in another country but to in a way claim the loyalty of the ethnic chinese community in these countries yeah and also to overwhelm any possible dissent voice of dissent because we only have uh, as audiences we all know we only have so much time in the day to read your facebooks your weibo your wechat so if uh, out of 100 pieces of content you can read 97 98 pieces are all from their back side, then the chances of anybody else coming up with a dissent voice will be very, very small. And to kind of get a sense of where China may be going with some of this, um, 
Does it resonate when you hear members of our panel talk about a full spectrum war, an ideological dimension of a of a kind of permanent state of um, ideological warfare? Is that something that is felt by the communist, the one party state in China? I, I, I think so. I, and then you can feel it when you uh, get into contact with some of the officials, when you are trying to interview them. But their concerns, I think, slightly different from what the rivalry between U.S. and Russia, because China knows it's uh, very much at a disadvantage in the uh, what they call the Anglosphere, the English-speaking or the overall Western world. So its uh, strategy currently, you can see, most people can see, is essentially trying to target some of the key influential people in terms of through business dealings, country, you know, country leaders. They really don't have much of a, a major strategy and a cultural kind of almost infiltration at, at a level similar to, to what we discussed before. Although it sounds from what the German uh, intelligence authorities are saying as if they're embarking upon that. But I want to move on to a different issue, which is China's control of its internal cyberspace, because obviously it would be very hard, given the Great Firewall of China and the enormous fortress mentality of that cyberspace for any outside actor to advance the kind of social media campaign through bots, through fake identities and so on. It would be very hard to do that in China, wouldn't it? It's next to impossible. Uh, You may be able to, at a very, very low level, very fringe level, uh, for a very short period of time to get in some uh, of your activities. But eventually, uh, some of the uh, studios and the control rooms I've seen in China they basically divided the country up to uh, into grids, and uh, you know every five thousand or so IP addresses will be controlled by an actual person sitting there with screens looking at which IP address is going through what information. So if they have millions of people actually sitting there in front of a screen, even you manage to get into a few things, eventually you're going to be shut down. And of course, there's very firm real name registration now in China, exactly. so the fake exactly. identity is almost impossible. Yeah. Hao Jiang, thanks so much for joining us. Molly McHugh, let's bring the panel back in. And you, um, obviously, as an American, that must be very interesting to hear how China is dealing with these issues. Um, sure. I mean, with China and with Russia and with other countries where there has been more attempts at internal control of the information space, especially online, uh, especially how data is being harvested and used to profile citizens. And again, I'm not saying the United States is not doing this, but there's been more publicity about what's happening in those places. Um, it, it is very interesting. I think it. He's right about the goals of what China has been doing online. Certainly what we've seen is they do have an equivalent of uh, information warriors, if you want to call them that, who are running um, information campaigns online. A lot of it is not uh, – it's not targeting other places. It's love China, not hate yourselves. Um, and a lot of what they do, uh, especially the the discussion of the LinkedIn profiles and using um, you know these these sort of sort of false identities to cultivate relationships with uh, people online to gain access to things, China's cyber and information strategies have traditionally focused in this space mostly on economic, uh, what we used to call economic espionage, but on economic issues in general, um, sort of expanding China's reach um, in these areas, uh, also on diplomatic influence. Um, And I think we see them still focusing on that lane, um, much more traditionally focused with their projection of power than with subversion strategies um, thus far. Dmitry Linick, what's your take on China in this realm? Well, China is um, probably in the same camp in the sense that, uh, you know, it's uh, opposed or the West believes they're opposed 
to the West uh, in terms of their form of governance, in terms of their values, ideals, and so forth. In fact, it's an artificially concocted concept. And I think the West should better understand that they're manufacturing enemies on the other side of this divide that neither China nor Russia are although, by although nature to to their you, the enemies. Chinese, the Chinese do say internally, Communist Party um, tells itself that it's in an ideological war with the West. Well, in response to people like uh, Mitt Romney and so forth, and uh, who sort of uh, don't beat about the bush, you know, describing uh, Russia and China uh, as uh, strategic enemies. But it doesn't have to be that way. That That is what I'm saying. Uh, both China and Russia are doing whatever they're doing in response to the hostility that the West projects. So it's, it's so the geopolitics yes, underpins absolutely, this situation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And Matthew Boleg, do you see a distinction between how China operates in the information warfare realm and how Russia operates? Um, what is sure is that when you have the United States calling Russia and China strategic competitors, and these are the exact words of the national security strategy or the national defense strategy, then yes, it, it is creating a security dilemma whereby increasing security for one actor is decreasing security for another. So in that sense, we are creating strategic competition as we speak. And these um, players like Russia, like China, feeling naturally threatened by what other countries might be projecting in terms of influence will respond with all the tools available. And in that sense, using the cyberspace in any way or another, projecting your national interests, whatever they might be on the cyberspace is only a legitimate concern, a legitimate answer. And we're going to leave the geopolitics there because the information war is conducted on the social media battlefield. And I want to get back to that battlefield and ask really what the social media companies themselves can do um, to make their users less of a target. Uh, What steps are they taking? Here's the boss of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, talking in September last year. I wish I could tell you that we're going to be able to stop all interference but that just wouldn't be realistic. There will always be bad actors in the world, and we can't prevent all governments from all interference. But we can make it harder. We can make it much harder. And that's what we're going to focus on doing. So today, I want to share the steps that we're taking to protect election integrity and make sure that Facebook is a force for good in democracy. And while the amount of problematic content that we've found so far remains relatively small, any attempted interference is a serious issue. Mark Zuckerberg there, but for more on what his company and other social media are planning and saying about uh, all of this, I'm joined by Mike Wendling, the editor of BBC Trending, which is the BBC's team reporting on the internet. Hi, Mike. Uh, How worried are these companies about foreign interference? Uh, Put simply, very, very worried. Um, You heard that statement by Mark Zuckerberg there. Uh, You've seen the lawyers um, for the companies go in front of congressional committees. Uh, There's increasingly uh, talk of regulation in London, in Washington and elsewhere. And they are worried that about that regulation and they're worried that this kind of stuff is going to affect the bottom line, quite frankly. And what are their solutions on offer? We heard something there from Mark Zuckerberg. Do any of the other companies have other different, better solutions? Um, well, uh, yeah, and that was not quite the limit of what Facebook is actually proposing. Um, there's a larger issue here, and that is of disinformation. It doesn't always come from state actors. Um, 
It might come from people who are looking to make a profit off of fake news. It might come from trolls. Uh, Facebook has tweaked its algorithm quite uh, very recently, uh, privileging uh, friends and family and trusted news sources at the disadvantage, it says, of uh, more dubious and fake news sources. Um, so the effects of that are still going through. Um, uh, another one is Twitter. Now, uh, Twitter is much smaller than Facebook. We have to rem- remember uh, that. But what Twitter is, it's a mainline to the news media. Uh, journalists like us are obsessed with it. And it, be- and it becomes the basis of news stories very, very quickly. Um, interestingly, Twitter has tried to combat the bots um, Starting in last year, they they really started to sort of crack down um, on a whole range of activity on their platform. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's just look at automated accounts. They removed um, uh, loads of them. And in fact, just this week, there was a um, a hashtag uh, Twitter lockdown. And that was in response to another initiative that Twitter was putting in, forcing users to verify that they were actually real people by providing a telephone number. Um, it's hard to get some, some statistics on exactly how far-reaching these plans have been so far and the impact of them. But clearly, for anecdotal evidence online indicates that there's lots of bots that have been, well, Unplugged by and Twitter. so the U.S. of course has midterm elections in November this year. Um, is it enough in your assessment to ensure that these coming elections are not plagued by the same problems that we saw with the presidential election in 2016? I would say that this is going to be a massive experiment, right? And let's put it this way: uh, the kinds of things that we are just finding out about the 2016 election now are going to be wide open um, later on this year in, in November, those midterms. So. Um, not only will you have the one side, the social media companies focusing on this, you will have uh, the Russian bot farms who might want to change their strategy or uh, might want to sit this one out. Um, the nature of the elections is also very different. Let's remind um, everyone that there um, are more than 500 different mini local elections that are going to be sort of the the key races there. So that might um, affect um, what we see online and, and the kind of impact that can actually be made on these kinds of um, elections. Um, it'll be a very interesting experiment in social media and democracy. Let's put it like that. Mike Grendling, thank you. So let's look into the future um, with the panel. Matthew Buleg, um, when we look ahead, it's obviously very fast moving. Everybody's reacting to what everybody else is doing. Where do you see it going? Well, if you look at the uh, midterm elections in the United States, Russia will certainly not sit this one out because they, they will need to test further processes. They will adapt to the countermeasures put together by social media and uh, media outlets in the United States and, and, and in the world and will test new processes to see if they can find pre-existing cracks, exploit these cracks and then move on along the, along the ladder. So no, they will, not, um, they will not sit this one out. And once again, you can't really blame them for trying. And Molly McHugh, I mean, we heard from Howard Zhang about how in China there's a there's a human being overseeing every few accounts. Is that the end of the road for the United States? Um, so I think that there's a couple of different aspects worthy of looking at quickly. One is this notion of, of the advertising being the thing. Um, paid ads are not really the thing that's having the most impact in terms of disinformation. It is uh, native content, as it would be described in, in advertising terms, things that are not meant to look like promoted ads, but things that are meant to look like things from people or groups you might know or trust. Um, and that is a very different thing, and um, uh, it has a very different impact on the audience that it targets. So you're um, basically saying that what Mark Zucker 
Zuckerberg offered is not a solution to the actual problem. No, it's important, uh, absolutely, to bring transparency to uh, particularly political advertising uh, on these platforms. However, it is not a solution to the problem. Um, the other aspect is um, the automation factor, which is which is really critical. Um, the way that uh, actors have learned to game the algorithms of social media, of Google search returns, of um, other places where algorithms are weighing in on how content trends or is promoted in front of us or topics or words or whatever it might be. Um, all of this is um, being very effectively gamed by uh, automation of content promotion um, and we need to pay more attention to how that works and the platforms need to stop pretending like they don't know uh, that this is happening. Um, and in many cases that does require more people overseeing what is happening with the algorithms but it also requires additional tweaks um, and I think that the tweak so far uh, is not going to solve the problem in the sense that the reason uh, – and there's been fairly good research on this but not enough. I think one of the contributing factors to the hardening of um, the divides in U.S. political environment comes from in part the curated news and reality that we all dive into in our social media feeds. And what the algorithm is talking about in terms of how they're tweaking it is locking that down even further. So now only people around you are the things that you're going to get information from. Um, it's not an answer to the problem. And I think it's a much – it is a much broader issue in terms of how we consume information, where it comes from, what we trust, uh, how we question what is there. Um, so I just hear you done. unpacking a bigger problem. I don't hear the solution in there. There's, I think there's different levels of solution. One is going to have to be regulatory because the social media platforms for the last 18 months have made clear that they are not going to be forthcoming in solving these problems. Um, however, the notion that these companies, which are some of the most innovative uh, and adaptive and quick and fast companies in the world in terms of what they can do, are sitting there going, oh, man, just let us know what we need to do and we're going to do it. Come on, guys. Like, step up. You can solve these problems. Um, they don't want to because it's going to cost them revenue in the short term. Um, but they need to stop pretending like they don't know what's happening and why they are not solving the problem. And a third is at the consumer level. Um, we all need to be more aware of where our information comes from, how we are consuming it, what it is meant to do to us when we see things. Um, and I think on all of those aspects um, in the United States, we're further behind than other places in trying to find solutions to these things. But there are there are solutions at all three of these levels that are made much easier when you have leadership that is willing to look at them, which we in the United States do not currently have in the White House. Dimitri. It's interesting that in this context, uh, we're talking about midterm elections in the United States, but nobody's mentioned the upcoming next month election in Russia. Silent assumption is that the West is, of course, not interfering in any way through social media or otherwise. Okay, we've been talking about social media, cyber sort of uh, fascinating sphere. I agree with that, absolutely. But I think it should be viewed in the context of the media in general. Because that is, I mean, you, uh, you get product placement in the sort of legitimate sort of traditional media, or should I say propaganda placement. And there we have to leave it because that is it for this week from The Real Story. Thank you to all our guests, Matthew Buleg, Dimitri Linick and Molly McHugh. Thank you all.